Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Joseph Delman and soon to be Deacon. Deacon. Well, now Deacon John. Well, Deacon John. We're in the future, John. I know. We got to live in the future. The ordination is this weekend, but by the time this comes out, it was last weekend. So I am a professed celibate. Not yet, but by the time this comes out, I am. You are Deacon John. Now, I uh, was thumbing through the Theology of the Body this morning, John Paul II's great work, and uh, there's some good stuff in there. I believe it. Yeah. I wanted to quick tell you about when I met John Paul. Did I ever tell you that? You met? Oh, yeah. I met John Paul, and uh, it was it was amazing. It was this beautiful night in Rome, kind of rainy, kind of mystical, and I was going in to meet my, my hero in life, greatest pope in a thousand years, and... Uh, so I walk up into his papal apartments. This is a real story. And uh, there he is, and I see him. And this is about a year before he died. And I kneel down before him, and I receive this rosary, and I had this whole thing I was going to say to him, and I was going to say, oh, you know, Holy Father. And he was going to burst into tears because it was going to be so profound, and I was going <laughs> to break down. And I just knelt before him, and I just froze. And I didn't say anything, and he looked down at me. And you know what he said to me? Greatest Pope in a thousand years. You know what he said? What did he say? Happy New Year. <laughs> That's all he said. Happy New Year. So that was my awesome. my John Paul II story. I was like, wow, that was a little anticlimactic. But nevertheless, I you got can a great say picture out of it. I got a great photo. But he, uh, all he had to say to me was, "Happy New Year." So there that's you go. awesome. Happy John New Paul Year. II. The reason I talk about that is because um, John Paul II was the inspiration for my priesthood. Even though really? meeting him was not necessarily the most profound moment of my life, it was very great. But how, it's a how funny is, story. Know, now. Really, how was it the inspiration of your priesthood? Sorry, I'm uh, I'm excited. I just ran up the stairs, and so I'm out of breath. The, and I'm trying not to breathe into the mic. But um, it was in reading his Witness to Hope in my first year of seminary that I just was like, uh, it was a turning point, really, in my seminary studies wow. and in my life. And uh, he's just a tremendous man. He really had an understanding of uh, vocations and of what they look like. And I want to kind of touch on that today. So the, our topic today is celibacy. Well, it's chastity first, celibacy, continence. What the heck are those three? Chastity, celibacy, continence. Chastity, celibacy, and continence. And so, um, first I want to talk about chastity. Let's do it. Right? This is like every teenager's worst nightmare. A, a, <laughs> a topic from his father or his priest on chastity. It's it's kind of a bad word. We don't even like, like oh, gross, chastity. Well, well what, what is chastity? Chastity is a virtue. And chastity is specifically the virtue that governs our um, sexual desires or sexual pleasures. So it deals with concupiscible appetites. Concupiscible what? is a fancy word. Um, for the passions in the soul. So we have these desires, these passions. We talked about eros several weeks ago, and it, this, is, this is the eros that we have, and essentially this is our way of using reason, our intellect, the, f- the power of our soul to govern um, the passions. It's, it's self-mastery. We, either have two, we have two options in life. We can either be uh, controlled by our passions and let them destroy us right. because they're disordered from the fall, or... We can use reason to order them and integrate them. And, and that's what John Paul II, he talks about chastity as this, uh, it being a way of integrating our sexuality into our humanity in a deeper, more profound way. So everybody's called to chastity. It's not just like for people who aren't married and then they don't have to worry about it. But if you're married, you have to be chaste because it's a virtue that governs those passions. And I don't think a lot of married people realize that, that as a married man or woman, you're called to chastity. It's going to look different. Do you think most people equate chastity with celibacy? Yes. Like yeah. chastity means, you know, the the sexual drive, you just kind of, you know, it completely 
repress it or move it away or don't go there or whatever. And, you know, like chastity's for celibates or for people who... Zach, Absolutely. I, I think chastity just means like um, repressing your sexual desires. That's what people think. Instead of integrating them more completely into your humanity. It's a, it's a beautiful way. And it actually leads towards freedom. And this is interesting. The catechism says that um, chastity leads to authentic friendship. Isn't that interesting? Authentic friendship. So when I tell, I, when I work with these high school kids, my brother is a youth minister, and I, always, especially the girls, I'm like, if a guy is not chaste, you cannot be, you should not be friends with him. He's incapable of of authentic friendship, you know, a love of a friend. He's just not able to do that. Chastity is a prerequisite for authentic friendship. Everybody wants friendship, so everybody needs to be chaste. Beautiful, and I think a lot of times in marriages, the friendship is um, is. If it's there in the beginning, it eventually kind of collapses because of that lack of chastity. It's a requirement, and friendship is an, is an integral part of married life. Interesting, huh? It's awesome. You don't always think of that. So, yeah, you don't think about so, friendship um, and chastity. So chastity is the virtue, and it has to be lived in accord with your state of life. There's three different states, so to speak. There's the married state, and your chastity would have to be, as a married person, or chaste conjugality. The conjugal life, the life, the sexual life of uh, you know a married man and woman. There's chastity has to be exercised there. The second type would be chaste celibacy, right? So like now I am well in the future in two days I am a celibate, which means I have committed my life. We'll talk about that in a second, but that's a state of life like married life, celibate state. And then there's continence as well, which is another state, which would be um, like someone who's living um, in the single life. They're still in preparation. Like you and I, like it's funny. Like right now, it's two days before. I am called to live chaste continence, continence, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But in two days, I'm going to be a chaste celibate. So I'll explain that in a little more detail in a second here. But according to our state of life, we have to uh, understand what chastity is. Right now, here's one more kind of a prerequisite before we, I explain what continence is and what celibacy is. Um, we equate the conjugal life with spousal life. Let me say that again. Conjugal life, meaning sexual, right. sexual life with spousal life. Meaning? Meaning the spousal life is, is the, the full life of, of the married couple, right? Mm-hmm. Every vocation is spousal. Only marriage in this life is conjugal. Right. right? Okay, I got you. So conjugal, sense? spousal is for everyone. We're all called to be spousal. Even priests yes. are spouses. Right. Um, even single people are, are living a spousal life. To a degree. Um, but the conjugal state is more kind of like the active married state. Exactly. Okay. It's the active sexual life of the married couple. So that's conjugal. Which is beautiful spousal and is essential. Kind of a bigger thing than that. But the spousal life, you cannot reduce your spousal life to just the conjugal life. Gotcha. Just having sex all the time, if we're going to be honest. that's and, and unfortunately, that's what we reduce it to. So a lot of times priests will think, I'm celibate. I don't have a spousal life. Not true. Not true. Someone thinking, I'm single. I haven't found my spouse. I, haven't, I, I don't have a spousal life. That's not the case. There's three. Every vocation is spousal because every vocation in some way configures us to Christ, hmm. who is the spouse of the church. Right. Ah, there we go. So first one, you exercise chastity in the married state, right? So you have um, um, your life becomes uh, a man marries a woman, a woman marries a man, and the purpose of that is to order it towards union with Christ. But they have a spousal life, an intimate spousal life together, but they become one flesh in order to more fully love Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of marriage. 
It's it's to get the other to heaven. Really, every vocation is it's the way to it's the path that we'll take to get to heaven. Right, our sanctification. So that's that's married life. Very cool. Celibacy. What is celibacy? Okay, celibacy is a, a when you consecrate your sexuality to the Lord. What do you mean? What's consecrate really? Okay, mean? so when you totally um, give of yourself to Jesus Christ as as a, in your body, you give of yourself to Jesus Christ. And why would you do that? You do it for three reasons. The first is Union with God. We always think priests are celibate because they consecrate their their sexuality, they consecrate their life because they want to have more free time to do stuff. That's crazy. Okay, that's not why I am I'm becoming celibate in two days. I'm promising celibacy forever in two days because it frees me for union with God. And John John Paul II says it's immediate union with Him. Hmm. The celibate soul, and this would be religious, would also take a vow of celibacy. It it, it causes immediate union with the Lord. Um, the married state, it's your union with Christ is mediated through your spouse. But I take on a spousal love of Christ. So in, in my celibacy as a priest, uniquely, I take on the spousal love of Christ for the church. So everything I do has to be understood as union with Christ and in a spousal way of giving myself to the church. So I'm not just a guy out there doing a lot of good things to help people, but I am loving the bride of Christ, which is the church, with the love of the spousal love of Christ, because as a priest I've been configured to him. So a celibate consecrates herself completely for union with God. That's the first reason. The second reason is eschatological witness. Eschaton means the end times, right? Jesus tells us there's no marriage in heaven. There's no giving of marriage and there's no receiving of marriage right. in heaven. So you take on, you renounce marriage in this life to take on the marriage of heaven. You become a sign, right? right. Sacraments are signs. You become a living sign, a living image of what the marriage of heaven will look like. That makes a lot of sense because if you look at without kind of the eternal perspective, and we're, if we're just living horizontally, if we're just living in this world. Celibacy doesn't make sense. It's like you're you're like why wouldn't you get married? Why wouldn't you kind of dig into this world as much as possible? And it's a sign like without like eternity and without heaven and without a spiritual realm. Me being a celibate doesn't really make any sense. Like, why am I doing this? What? what how does this make it? It makes sense to me, and it makes sense to others because it's pointing me towards the heavenly reality. That there is more than beyond just this world. You know, we're we're going. This is pointing. It's a sign to another dimension. Exactly. You know, and it's the, awesome. the the spousal love of the celibate, which is the sign of the marriage of heaven, which we all will take on the marriage of heaven, um, is is a reminder, a constant reminder for those who are married in this world that it's not about this world. Right? That it's, it points to the, the marriage of heaven, which would be eternal. That's our job. That's We need to live as a, a living sign, as a living image of Christ and the marriage of heaven. That's beautiful. It's a profound, profound thing, but we've lost that. It just looks like this weird kind of thing that we've kept from the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's, it's so spousal. It's so beautiful. So the life of the celibate is a deeply, deeply spousal life, and it's a commitment to love in a nuptial way, even though it's not conjugal. That's awesome. I heard it explained once that how, like, we're both. We're all going celibates and married and single. We're all going to one destination, and that is the heavenly reality. And in heaven, there's going to be a marriage. It's a marriage feast between the Lamb, Christ, and His bride, the Church. Exactly. You know, and we're all a part of that marriage. You know, and so it's basically like the image I have in my head is like a mountain, and we're all going to the top of the mountain. Celibates are saying they're one. They're going directly to the top. I'm living instead of living a mediated life. Um, I'm going to live straight to this marriage. Married people. Um, through, I mean, this is a beautiful thing because things mean something. This world means something. And so when people get married, it's not an end in itself, but it's ultimately a sign. And this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. 
you know, it's a sign of the love of Christ in his church. Exactly. And it's not a sign that's just kind of like, oh, that's nice. It's a sign that is leading both of these people are going to learn how to love as spouses um, that prepare that and this will prepare them for the heavenly marriage. You know, exactly. where in mar- in heaven, there is no way to give in marriage because we're all. I don't, I don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be some sort it's of marriage be great, though. and it's going to involve now, everybody. Exactly. Here, you know? John Paul II said that marriage is the primordial sacrament. So it, it's this is the most natural, mm-hmm. beautiful, amazing thing oh, awesome. that a man can do is marry. It is the way on the natural level to marry. And it's elevated as a sacrament, so it, it is, becomes a supernatural way in Christ. But when you renounce that for the sake of the marriage of heaven— you take on that that's a sign of celibacy now like we said we got to counter this understanding that the celibate only uh does a lot of activity right right? paul the sixth had an interesting line in the 70s he said celibacy um the primary reason for celibacy is contemplation isn't that interesting contemplation so you and i if we're going to be celibates if we're going to be consecrated men celibates we need to be living witnesses of the contemplative life and we need to be um Almost like specialist in 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 the contemplative prayer because that is a reflection of our union with Jesus. We should be specialists. Exactly. That that is our reason. That's why we exist. That is our marriage. That is our spousal love, mm. and our time uh, with our spouse is then a beautiful contemplative time of prayer. It's awesome. Beautiful. Number three, continence. What the heck is continence? Okay, continence is, and this is I just read this morning. Um, continence is the conscious, voluntary renunciation of sexual union. So. For a high school kid living out, not married, not a professed or consecrated celibate, he lives in a state of continence, which means he's not having sex. Right. Okay? Now, why would he do that? Because he has to prepare spiritually for his vocation, but continence is also a state where um, he frees, he is free for union with Christ. Now, why would he have union with Christ? What's the spousal dimension of, of the continent state? For some person, I mean, there's a lot of people out there struggling saying, I've never found my spouse. I've never found my wife. I feel like I'm vocationless. You're living continence so that you can have the spousal love of Christ because you were espoused to him in your baptism. In your baptism, you were brought into the church, but if the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is one flesh with the church, then you have become espoused to Christ. You live continently until marriage in order to express that reality. Your life is given to Christ. I think if teenagers realize this, like struggling to live chastity, struggling to live and understand this, that I'm living a continent life because I'm espoused to Jesus Christ in my baptism. If they realize that, I think it would it would be a profoundly different thing instead of just feeling like I have to repress all of these desires and these passions that I have. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Continence is also an important word in the early church because celibacy is goes back to the to the early church, but also we have continence. So you have priestly continence and you have priestly celibacy. We have married priests in the early church. Right. But there's a lot of books out there. I'm thinking in particular of uh, a guy named Cardinal Stickler who wrote a book on the case for clerical celibacy. Stickler. When we say, why are priests celibate? Why are they doing this? Well, they were celibate in the beginning, but they were also continent. Married priests in the beginning of the church refrained from sexual union and they lived as brother and sister. Really? As soon as they were ordained. No way. So in the early church, you have two wow. forms. You have celibate, clergy and you have continent clergy the continent clergy are they're married but they live as brother and sister so they they take on continence in the early church and then after several centuries that drops out and it becomes primarily just celibacy wow it's beautiful i didn't know that oh yeah we have documents going back to the 200s that show this that say um that um that 
continence was not only a, a kind of a recommended thing, it was a requirement in the early church. Really? Yeah. So there you go. So there's, a, there's if you're wondering about what is this celibacy thing, did this just come in like the 11th century? No, no, it's from the early church, but it takes the form of celibacy and of continence. There you go. That's awesome. I mean, like Paul is a celibate. Peter, I mean, we know Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. Exactly. Maybe he was confident. Exactly. That's wild that, stuff, man. This is awesome. I think that's all I got. Now, we need to um, hustle here because Sister Esther's going to kill me. I'm going to be late for class again. You got a boogie. All right. You want to do emails? Let's do uh, a couple of emails. Listener mail. Let's see. Okay. So this one is uh, regarding um, the new translation okay. podcast that okay. we had. Uh, we mentioned the word shamar on that as an example I think we used. Um, so Kevin B. writes, he says, hey, John and Joe. I have defined my life around the term shamar, but my Jewish friend says that shamar is not a Hebrew word and that it sounds made up. Do I still have a purpose? Okay. Kevin, you're ridiculous. Kevin was in my Bible study the last couple of years. Now he's in seminary. Yes, Kevin, you still have a purpose. And yes, I showed your Jewish friend that shamar is a legitimate Hebrew word. I promise, I promise it is legit, Kevin. Thank you. You have a purpose. Good stuff. Is that it? That's all we got, man. All right. Hey, uh, any emails, comments, questions, catholicstuffpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.